You ever try to act like you know what you're talking about and then just get just get exposed for the fraud you are in that moment? Like you think you've got everything together and you're trying to talk like you, you know, and then somebody says, actually, and you realize, oh man, the, the facade has been destroyed. This happened to me a, a few weekends ago, a couple Saturdays ago, we were at my family reunion and this is my dad's side of the family and we started off everything by playing around the golf that morning. And so I know some of you are like, you heard golf and you're like, oh, great, you know, but hey, it's great for a nap on Sunday afternoons, let me tell you. But anyway, w- when you watch it, we were playing and Seth came, he's old enough to come play with us now and I was trying to help him a little bit. Uh, the coach and me was trying to help him like transfer his baseball swing into his golf swing. So I was trying to give him some pointers and, and that kind of thing. But I realized at one point, like I wasn't playing all that well that day. I mean, I, I had my moments, but what I was saying was not really translating into what I was doing. And so at one point I looked at Seth and I said, I used the maxim, do as I say, not as I do. Which at that point, Seth could have completely like just turned around and looked at me and said, why in the world would I do what you say? Because <laughs> you obviously can't do it. And he would have been completely legitimate looking at me like I was crazy for trying to instruct him on how to have a good golf swing that day. And he would have been well within his bounds to call me a hypocrite, right? I mean, because most of the time when people use that phrase, do as I say, not as I do, maybe you remember people using that with you or they you've used it, you know, it's really just kind of giving yourself permission to say whatever you want, but then do whatever you want. And they can be completely diametrically opposed. Parents, I think, are probably the most guilty of this. If we're, if we have a moment of honesty there, if we kind of think back on our parents, I know in our household, like a lot of questions that that my kids have sometimes are, why does daddy get to, you know, do blank? Like, why does he get a bigger piece of cake than me? Or why does he have a later bedtime? You know, that kind of stuff. And it's always, you know, my first response is, well, because I'm bigger than you. And okay, maybe not. That's not the first thing. But hey, I've put my time in, right? That I've kind of earned a later bedtime. I, I am bigger. And so having a bigger piece of cake is perfectly fine. Yesterday, randomly, my youngest, my four-year-old, asked me out of the blue, this was really strange, Daddy, when, when we grow up, can we say bad words? And just, yeah, if you let that marinate for a second, I immediately went to have... Like, what has she heard us say? <laughs> you know, is there something that I you know, haven't realized that I've said something? And, and I said, of course, my answer was, well, no, like we don't say bad words. I, w- I will say, I'm pretty sure most of my kids still think the S word is spelled S-T-U-P-I-D, you know, so, so maybe they have heard us use that bad word before, and, and that's what she was thinking about. But, but it really kind of makes you stop and think, it's like, okay, or have, have my actions, like, how consistent are they with my words? Or maybe, maybe you can think of a manager that you've, that you've had who's kind of lived by that maxim, do as I say, not as I do, that... Uh, they've been in a position of, of power, authority over you, and they seem to have a different standard for their subordinates than they do for themselves, like what they expect for you to do versus what they put into practice and how they work. When it's used in this fashion, that, that whole that phrase and that thinking, it's not just run-of-the-mill hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy built on a foundation of privilege, and power, and authority. It's being said to direct those we're over or responsible for to dismiss concerns over an inconsistency that we're showing in our position that we shouldn't be showing. And it's when we think we're too good for things, 
Um, it's when we think we're above doing things as we ought to, that when it's, that's when we become the most vulnerable in our lives. One of, the, one of the earliest examples of this particular wording of do as I say, not as I do, is written in 1654 by John Selden. John Selden was a polymath. He knew a bunch of stuff about a lot of different things. He was an expert in the English law, and he was a Christian too. And he wrote a lot of stuff. He had a lot of opinions on things. But he wrote this book called Table Talk. And within a section of that book, he had opinions about preaching and about preachers. And I thought that was, this was kind of this is kind of funny. He wrote, preachers say, do as I say, not as I do. But if a physician had the same disease upon him that I have, and he should bid me do one thing and he do quite another, could I believe him? Which kind of one of those things, I stepped on my toes just a little bit. So I figured I'd share that with you this morning. Obviously, he had some experiences with church leadership and in his faith and going to church and trying to live out his faith where uh, there were people who were teaching that didn't seem to match up what they said with the actions they put uh, put together in their life and how they understood how Jesus calls us to live. And this is such an important, this is what Paul gets into in chapter 6 of Romans. This is such an important aspect of our faith that I don't know that it could be overstated. Brendan Manning, who wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, he wrote a very powerful uh, saying that has uh, stuck with me for years. And just in case you don't, aren't familiar with him, Brendan Manning was a priest who hid alcoholism for years and years and years, gave up his vows to marry, ended up getting divorced 18 years later because of his alcoholism. And after that, went through a period of repentance and rediscovering God's grace in his life that he then went on to become an author and a speaker that has been very inspirational to people's faith since that time. And he wrote this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. It's powerful because he, not only did, did he observe that, he lived that in his life. And he knew that when there's an inconsistency between what we say and what we do, that it has very serious ramifications for us and the people around us. I know this is a motivation for me to strive to be as consistent as I possibly can in my faith. And I hope it is one for you as well, recognizing that at some point we're all hypocrites now, now, just so you know, like, we don't hold the corner on hypocrisy. Everyone's a hypocrite, not just those who try to follow Jesus. And maybe the response that you can use next time is, well, at least I'm trying. You know, <laughs> okay, maybe not. Maybe that would be a little too sarcastic. Um, all of us are hi hypocrites, but, but what makes all of this more serious or more important is when those who claim Jesus simply don't act or speak like him. Jesus himself addresses the do as I say, not as I do of the religious leaders of the day, of his day in Matthew chapter 23. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. I think it'd be a really easy thing to start a reality show called Christians Behaving Badly. I don't know if you think that's a good idea. Maybe some of you are creative and want to start that sometime. Like we could probably all think of pretty good examples of 
maybe church leaders or people who have become very popular, have a very large religious following and group of people that are kind of centered around their misrepresentation of Jesus' teachings. And, and we see that and kind of point that out and we think, man, you're making the, all the rest of us look bad. But, but if we're honest, we, we could all have cameo, cameos in that show, right? I mean, we could all end up on there at some point in our lives. We're none of us perfect. But the way that we admit the way sin defeats us and why hypocrisy becomes a thing in our lives is key to whether or not it's a liability for us. And this is, this is what, like I mentioned earlier, this is what Paul talks about in chapter 6 of Romans. And so we're going to be reading from there this morning if you want to turn there. And it's in chapter 6 that Paul sets the stage for how the grace in which we stand as Christians ought to be put into practice. And with any faith, there, there's always going to be discussion about how life ought to be lived. And there's going to be debate about that. And we can, we can talk about all the issues that Christians disagree on and how, how, we, how we look at things. But, oh, this is how you ought to live. No, this is how you ought to live. And you're wrong. And this is why. But the reason behind those why, the, those ought tos, the why behind that, is even more important. Because that changes how we view those ought tos. Jesus promises life from death because we're not just saved from sin and death, we're saved to life as well. And so it matters how we live as Christians. Grace ought to visibly change how we walk the walk and talk the talk with Jesus. And so Paul explains how all this works in this chapter. And I'm going to read the first seven verses first, and I just want to let you know that any time that I talk with someone who's thinking about becoming baptized or looking at that as, as making a decision, making that decision in your life, in their life, I use this scripture, this passage as a foundation for that, because Paul so clearly and concisely talks about what happens when we respond to the gospel of Jesus and how it's meant to impact us. All right, so first seven verses of Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he's responding to some things that he mentioned in chapter 5, which you can check out later on your own time. But he says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And so you can pretty quickly appreciate the symbolism that baptism holds when it comes to us joining in with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the conclusion of which is us being set free from sin. So just out of curiosity, and this is not something you need to answer or raise your hand for or anything like that, but I just kind of want you to consider in your, in your mind and your thinking, when is the last time you felt set free from sin? Or when's the last time that you were sin-free in your life? That's even more of a significant way of wording that. Like if I were to think about that, when, when, when is the last time that was the case? Like, like I'd have to go through and think really hard, really carefully through my morning, even today, and think through, like, could I say that I've made it this far in the day without having any issues? And would I even be aware of what those are? Or, or maybe, 
maybe, you know, do you think of it this way? Have you ever thought like, well, because I'm under the grace of Jesus, that sin really isn't that big of a deal. So even if I do something wrong, that's fine because Jesus has taken care of it. And so it doesn't really even matter. Like, like his hypocrisy, like we talked about just a couple minutes ago, is, is that even a thing? Like, do I have to be worried about that? Because I'm under the grace of Jesus. And so regardless of what happens in my life or what I say or do, the, God's already done the work of salvation through Jesus and justified our redemption. See, on the one hand, there, there's a couple different responses. One is that sin is, it's inevitable, we're powerless, like we can't get rid of that in our life because we're weak, we're powerless, we're, we're imperfect. Or, on the other hand, as Paul writes in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. There's this death-to-life freedom that Paul is talking about in chapter 6 that we're meant to experience in life. And it may seem elusive sometimes, at least it does to me at times, because the breaking of our chains to sin wasn't the end of what the sacrifice of Jesus accomplished. It was, it was just the beginning. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Post-salvation, we've been moved from the burden of sin to the task of righteousness that leads to holiness. And I don't know if you've ever thought about your life or that even being a possibility in, in terms of what it looks like to be a Christ follower. Like, to, to consider that I could strive to be or even pursue being in the same category of, of God's holiness and that that's something that he desires for my life. And yet it's this that allows us to experience the life that we were always intended to live. The more sin ends in our life, the more life begins. So Paul instructs us to submit to the requirements of freedom to be found in righteousness. Which, which that's what he's talking about when he says to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. He says, and I'm using a human example here, and the reason he says it that way is because he says, hey, there's not a one-to-one -one relationship here. Like, the Romans knew exactly what slavery was. It was a part of everyday life for them. And so he's not saying that, like, yeah, you have no choice in the matter. What he's saying is the difference between real slavery and is this is that with God, you do have a choice that he can enable you to live a different life than the one that you had before. And so real freedom is experienced on the other side of offering our entire selves to the truth. Does that mean there are gonna be limitations to what we allow in our lives and what we choose, what we do? A absolutely. 
And, and this could be said in multiple different ways, but I find the way that Eleanor Roosevelt said it uh, quite entertaining, and so I'm gonna share, share what she says. She says, freedom makes a huge requirement of every human being. With freedom comes responsibility. For the person who is unwilling to grow up, the person who does not wanna carry his own weight, this is a frightening prospect. And so while we don't have to carry the weight of acquiring our own salvation, we're surely meant to experience the goodness that the responsibility of freedom in Christ affords us. And it's taking on that responsibility that allows that goodness to be in place in our lives. Even Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11, when we think of Jesus and being able to take all the weariness of this life, the burdens that we carry because of the brokenness of our sin and lay them at his, lay them at his feet, even Jesus says, when he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Rest, or freedom from our burdens, doesn't mean inaction. It doesn't mean we aren't working. It just means that we're exchanging meaningless, tiring, and pain-inducing activity for lightness, goodness, and redemptive work. And so I just, you know, again, I want you to kind of think in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, like what is, what is the weight that comes from the freedom of your salvation that you are carrying? Like what's, what's the thing, what's the yoke that Jesus has placed on your life and your call? Like what, what's the thing that you're carrying forward as a result of that? Because the old life is gone and has been crucified and you've picked up the new life that God has offered through Jesus. It's so much lighter than the weight you and I were carrying before, but it's still God's way of allowing us to experience his righteousness. Another way of asking this is, you know, especially if the wages of sin is death, is what's the payoff of eternal life in your life in the here and now? Because, because there is one. God wants a different life for us, the life that he always intended for us to live as a result of, of choosing Jesus. And maybe the reason, and again, this is true for me. Maybe it's not true for you. Maybe the reason we have room and capacity for sin in our lives, even as Christians, is that there are still things that we have not exchanged the slavery of sin for, for the goodness of what God has called us to pick up. Like there's still things that we haven't cut out of our lives. There's still steps that we haven't taken to make sure that those things aren't still latched on and holding on to us. The freedom afforded to us by God's grace leads to a life that's set by the standard of righteousness. And maybe there are still things that exist in our life that aren't set by the standards of righteousness. And that's why we still deal with our own sin in life. Paul talks a lot about um, death for the old self and newness of life here. And I don't know how often you think about death. I know that kind of like takes a morbid left turn there that maybe you weren't expecting. I don't know how often you think about your funeral or, or what that experience is like. And a lot of times when we bring that kind of stuff up, it's, you know, we think of it in terms of, hey, what do you want people to say at your funeral? Uh, what, what do you want people to be thinking uh, at those times? And, and, and to be quite honest, I've done a lot of different funerals. Funerals are not like the time in which people are the most forthcoming. And, and what I mean by that, like, it's, it's not the appropriate time for an airing of grievances. I mean, just if, if you didn't know that, like, like, that's not the time where you say, well, here's all the deepest, darkest things that this person did, and here's, here are the things that we didn't like. And like, no, you're trying to remember the goodness of that, that person, and, and they were there. And our hope, I think, 
ultimately is for people to be able to remember fondly not all the things that were in our past that, that we did, but, but remember like how our lives were changed by Jesus moving forward. And what the overarching theme of how we impact this, people's lives from that point forward, like how that continues to have an effect on those people even when we're long gone. Because that's the kind of life that God offers us through, through Jesus. Like even if you think of, of, of your funeral or what people might say or think or do, like even if that causes you a little bit of distress, distress what's amazing about what God's grace does for us is that we're giving the opportunity to have a funeral for the old life of sin that we're so desperate to cast off and bring and begin a brand new one now. Like that, that idea of being able to have a whole second life to redo things and to push past our, our regrets, our mistakes, our sin, all those kinds of things, the brokenness that comes with that. Like that, that's the offer that we get to experience right now. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. Like that's not something that has to be this pipe dream. I mean, this is something that we can live out now, that we can choose. A life that's unshackled from the events of our past and we can withstand the inconsistencies of our future because of the freedom that a life that is directed by or controlled by the righteousness of God affords us. It's never too late for God to rewrite our story. And that's, that's what happens when we choose... God over our old life, the things that keep hanging on to us. It's not too late to live a full life, ever. It's not too late to live a life that's not enslaved by meaninglessness or regret, or to live one that exchanges a false sense of control for a God-directed life of eternity. And the benefit of choosing this kind of life to pursue God's righteousness, it leads to continual sanctification, which just means the work of the Holy Spirit in leading us toward purity, toward holiness in our life, continue, work, continue to work on continual improvement in how we follow Jesus and how we put those things of faith into place in our life. That we pursue God's standard of living, which leads to a life that's worth living. And not only does it benefit us, but it benefits the community of people around us who get to share in the goodness that we can share together despite the impact that a world that is not our home makes on us. When we accept God's gift of righteous living, the payoff is a life unshackled by sin. And so I, I just wanna encourage you to think about this question and ask yourself this question, maybe this, this afternoon, maybe it's this week, uh, maybe it's just a continual question that you, that you think of in your life, is think about in light of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, if the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, think, ask yourself, like, what is the payoff for my actions? What, what is the payoff for why I decide to do what I do when I'm making this decision? When I have this big thing coming up and when I, and I have option A, B, and C, like, what's the payoff for those choices? Is it from the old life? that might be driven by selfishness or pride or vain ambition or bitterness or lust or all of those things that, that create pain in our life? Or is it from the new life in the pursuit of walking the walk and talking the talk of Jesus? Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It makes life so much more simple to live in the freedom that's directed by God's righteousness it makes us so much more less hampered and held back 
by the manufactured drama that we create for ourselves and that other people create in our lives. And it enables us to live a life that is truly free. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, the opportunity that we have to live a life that is markedly different, that is resurrected from the old life of sin, that we can move past any of the uh, things that have that we've done, that have been done to us, and that we can experience a new life with you um, before we even get to eternity with you. And that, God, we get to share in that life with each other. And we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you give us the strength that we need, the clarity of vision that we need to see what that life looks like. That as we read your word, that we put it into practice in our lives, um, that, that we, can, we can walk more and more like you, that we can talk more and more like you and experience the type of life that we were always meant to live. God, we, we thank you for this. We thank you for this type, this type of freedom that you afford us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.